according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. We are still in Philippians 1.1 this morning. Philippians 1.1, as we uh, pick up where we left off a week ago, one week ago this morning, I appreciate... Uh, uh, Cornelius filling in for me on Wednesday and uh, the blessings of being able to participate in the annual uh, Bible conference at West Houston Bible Church. They're always hosting or for 11 years now, 12 years now, they've been the uh, consistent host for uh, the Schaefer Theological Seminary and uh, many things there. I want to bring greetings from uh, all the pastors you know and love from all over the country. It was a, a, an annual reunion and we look forward to that. Uh, considerably. All right. Philippians 1 1. Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and the deacons. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning saints and uh, supervisors and servants. <laughs> Giving it the three S's saints, overseers, and deacons that uh, constitute any local church, including Philippi, including Austin, and uh, what we're dealing with here. All right, before we begin, let's take a moment for silent prayer, asking God to set aside our distractions and to humble us under the authority of the Word of God. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, we do come before you this morning thankful for your truth, thankful for your faithfulness calling upon your continued faithfulness, Father, as we study to show ourselves approved. Open the eyes of our understanding. Lead us in the paths of righteousness for your name's sake. I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right. So, um, I just realized I don't have my notes. I stashed them. My secret hiding place. All right. Yes, sir. I'm losing battery. We'll see if we can make it through the hour. All right. The salutation to the saints, the overseers, and the deacons. Of course, we're breaking down the chapter into four parts. I'm not going to run through those again. We'll handle each one as we come to it. But uh, for now, we're, we're simply locked in on verses 1 and 2, which is the salutation. Our salutations, plural. The address to the saints, to the overseers, and to the deacons. And uh, we've talked about the aspects here of Timothy's co-authorship and uh, the different epistles that Paul uses, uh, Timothy, and the different epistles where he uses co-authors. We also discussed um, the aspects of slavery, spent some time discussing slavery. Um, He does address his slave mindset in three out of his 13 epistles, that he will speak of himself as a bondservant of Jesus Christ or a slave of Jesus Christ and the doulos terminology that goes with that. And we want to understand slavery for what it was in the ancient world and not be wrapped up or, or wrapped around the axle or bent out of shape over certain aspects of it. There's nothing racial with it. Uh, it, it was what it was and, uh, and it is what it is. And we want to understand in the biblical context what slavery was all about and what is our p- uh, position as bond servants of Jesus Christ, as slaves of Jesus Christ, because we didn't purchase our own freedom. Uh, the, the freedom from the slave market of sin was, was accomplished, but it was accomplished by God the Father in giving His Son on our behalf. And since we didn't purchase ourselves, we don't own ourselves. We belong now to Jesus Christ. And we want to be very clear on that as well. And so uh, we took some time to work our way through the doulos terminology. I read a lengthy entry in the theological lexicon of the New Testament, read an even longer entry in the uh, Lexham Bible Dictionary, and I think, uh, I think we can take it from there. We're solid on that material. Jesus, of course, uh, spoke many times about slaves. Slaves were often featured in his parables. They were often featured in, in many of his teachings. And some of his miracles were accomplished. There was a centurion who had a slave that was at the point of death. And Jesus accomplished that miracle long distance. He uh, didn't even have to travel to the centurion's home. He could just give the word right where he was. And that slave was healed uh, at that very moment. And... Uh, different aspects there. So 72 times that uh, the doulos vocabulary occurs in uh, in the Gospels. 
And then as we concluded a week ago, I, I think we got through most of these. Uh, if not, that's fine. Uh, but in, in Paul's epistles, he would frequently uh, reference slaves, uh, not only literal slaves uh, uh, and the expectations there, that slaves were to be the best slaves in the world and serving their masters as unto the Lord, uh, that that would itself be a part of their Christian witness and their testimony that uh, of their faith in working out their salvation, that they would be hard workers from the heart, not just man-pleasers and not with external service, but truly working as hard as they could as if their master was Jesus Christ. And then on the flip side, masters as well were expected as Christian slave owners we're expected to operate in the love of Christ. We're expected to operate appropriately and biblically and, and not brutally and not, not with, uh, with the, the evil things that slavery can so frequently degenerate into. And then, of course, the whole book of Philemon is about returning a runaway slave. Onesimus was a runaway slave. And Paul returned Onesimus to Philemon, uh, I believe, from Ephesus, from an Ephesian imprisonment, to Colossae as opposed to a Roman imprisonment and some of the things we've discussed there. Which brings us now to some new material here for this morning. I do want to talk about what a local church is and how it is comprised of saints and uh, and then how the leadership for those saints, the administrative leadership, the uh, the structure is provided through overseers and deacons. And so that's what we get through here. And so point three in the outline, if you're taking notes and, and following along, keeping your own outline with this, point three, a local church is a subset of the universal church. We get that, right? Uh, we don't have every believer on the planet here today. In fact, the church universal has never been co-located at any one place at any one time. Uh, the church, that won't happen until the rapture. Uh, the, the, the church, most of the church today is in heaven right? My mother's in heaven. We have 19 centuries or up to 20 centuries now of, of the bride of Christ, the body of Christ, the church universal, most of which is in heaven. It's only the presently living generation that's still on this earth today. And so whatever percentage that is, whatever ratio that is, it's, it's one generation out of however many going back 2,000 years. And so uh, we have the church universal, which is every member of the body of Christ from Pentecost to rapture. Right? We get that. We understand how that works. From the day of Pentecost, uh, 33 AD, to today and on to whenever the trumpet sounds, every believer priest is a part of this body of Christ. We're a part of the church universal. Then within that overall body come local churches as a subset of the universal church. And as a subset, it is fixed to a particular locality. Constantly throughout the New Testament, we have that vocabulary. Here it's Philippi to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi. And it's interesting to me, the participle of being, that they are located in Philippi. That's where they are. People are, of course, portable. People can move. We, you know, we can, uh, we can relocate from one place to another place. But the lampstand itself is fixed. The lampstand is, is fixed in a locality. We learn some of these principles as well in Revelation 2 and 3 because there's seven lampstands there. And some of the divine discipline happens uh, if, a, if a shepherd fails to repent, if, uh, if they are displeasing in the eyes of the Lord. Some of the discipline actually affects the lampstand. Jesus says, I will remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. And uh, those were the admonishments to the, to the pastors, to the messengers of those local churches. And so in this case, it's Philippi. Uh, we spent six years, right, in 1 Corinthians, the, the saints in Corinth, or the saints in Ephesus, or the saints in Rome, as it were. Uh, the, the locality is what it is. Now, in the first century, early in, in church history, there was only one church in any particular town, all right? And so um, that's, that's the reality of what it was. Not to say that they couldn't have a second church in the same town. The fact is they just didn't have, uh, as far as what's recorded in the New Testament, multiple churches in the same town. And so um, that led to some other legends and traditions in church history. It led, in the second and third century, it led to them instituting some political things along the lines of the Roman Empire and those organizational things where they would appoint a bishop and the bishop was the bishop over the entire town. 
See, once they started to have multiple local churches in the same town, they felt it was necessary to have one bishop in charge of all the pastors, all the churches, all the individual flocks within the same town. Okay, Now that happened in church history, but that is not mandated in the Bible, and I believe it's contrary to the Bible. That the, the principle is local churches. And Jesus Christ walks in the midst of every local church, and he holds every star in his right hand. And so there is no New Testament validation for any hierarchy above the local church. And we'll talk about that as we proceed through the details here on overseers and, uh, and deacons. So we have a subset of the local church, of the universal church, and it's fixed to a particular locality, and it is administered. It is administered through the offices of overseer and deacon. We have offices in each lampstand. And uh, this becomes a, an important study on church polity. It allows us to understand the organization that God designed so that it's not just total chaos with everybody doing what's right in their own eyes, <laughs> okay? Or other chaos that can devolve when First uh, Corinthians 14 is being violated, uh, that all things are to be done properly and in an orderly manner. And something that helps to provide for that propriety and that orderliness are the offices of overseer and uh and deacon. All right. So we have the introduction to it there in verse one. If we turn over to first Timothy, I want to show you how this gets expanded. This is simply a salutation. So there's not a, a lot of development in uh, Philippians one, but the development comes in first Timothy and the first Timothy chapter three, we have effectively the entire chapter to expand upon that one verse from Philippians chapter one. Because we have a chapter that unfolds the office of overseer and the office of deacon with several verses in each unit. And then beyond that, even beyond the deacon verses, we then have additional information as it pertains to a local church. Reading from 1 Timothy chapter 3, and I'm going to take it slightly out of order because on the screen it says, of course, verses 1 through 13, and, or 3 through 13. And uh, I'm going to go beyond that and cover verses 1 through 16. <laughs> but um, look at uh, verse 14. It says, I am writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long. But in case I am delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God. Now, by the way, I think this is for Timothy's personal benefit as a pastoral epistle, but beyond Timothy, I believe this is now being given to Ephesus, the church at Ephesus. This is being given to the whole body of Christ through the inspired scripture. That any local church needs to use First Timothy as the basis for their church polity, as a basis for their um, ministry. All right? Are we still good? All right. Give me the signal at any time. If I fade out, we can swap batteries in the like changing a horse in the middle of the stream or changing streams in the middle of a horse. I'm not sure how that works. All right. In case I am delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. And then a hymn, he composes a psalm in verse 16, the mystery of godliness by common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. And this can, we can think of this as our theme song. We can think of this as the, the charter of, of the, of the body of Christ. Uh, he who was revealed in the flesh was vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. And that's us. That's, first of all, that's Christ. But then beyond that, that's us in, in the local church. We ourselves, being the body of Christ, we have our own application of this mystery of godliness, that we are also observed by angels. We also are, are preached into the nations and, and uh, as we carry out the, the Great Commission and, and aspects there. We have a, uh, a bodily ministry in the flesh, and yet we're operating on the basis of the Spirit, are we not? And uh, observed by the angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world as we walk by faith in this fallen world and then taken up in glory ultimately where's the church going to go the church is waiting and it could be today it could be this hour it could the trumpet could sound before my battery dies right that quickly that imminently and we're, we're going to be caught up with uh, the whole body of christ and for the first time ever 
the entire bride will be complete. It will be co-located at one place at one time, and it's going to be in the air. We're going to meet the Lord in the air. What a joy, all right, as, uh, as that goes. So this chapter is written in that regard, that you will know how you ought to conduct himself in the household of God, the church of the living God. Now, as I said, I think Timothy personally knew this already, all right, but the, for Timothy's benefit, but for his church's benefit, for the body of Christ's benefit, we have here a, a letter that's written for any local church. If you've got a, a home Bible study, if you have an informal Christian fellowship, and you're thinking about starting a church, I've got friends right now thinking about starting a church. Well, what do you need to start a church? Okay, do you need a building? No. Do you need a lot of money? What do you need to start a church? It's kind of a t- trick question. You and I don't start a church. Jesus Christ plants a lampstand. Okay, and so. Um, The recognition is if Jesus Christ has planted a lampstand, then we identify as such. And we recognize that this is not simply uh, an informal fellowship. This is not simply a a home Bible study. That this is now a lampstand. And we didn't do it. Jesus Christ is the head of the church. He opens doors no man can shut. He shuts doors no man can open. And if he is, has planted a lampstand, and if he is holding a star in his right hand, that is a right hand messenger, an angelos, in Revelation 2 and 3, then this is now a lampstand. And the structure is going to happen through overseers and deacons. You realize, wow, this is a lampstand. We better start appointing these overseers and deacons so that we can operate biblically uh, as per 1 Timothy chapter 3. All right. There's other things I can do with verse 15. There's there's, um, practical things for behavior things I used to use with my children, things I used to use, uh, and I still do, okay? Not, not that we glorify the location, not that we sanctify the, the building, although I think we do. Uh, this, this building can burn down tomorrow, and it doesn't end Austin Bible Church, so we're, we're not the building, we're the people. Uh, but nevertheless, this is not a holy place, but it is. It's not a, uh, it's not a temple. We are the temple, Right? Nevertheless, I I use this verse because there is an ought to. There is language here of expectation. What you ought to, what is fitting, what is appropriate for your conduct. And so I would ask my children, I say, is this a playground or is this a church? You know, and is there conduct, is there behavior that's acceptable on the playground or acceptable at the beach or acceptable wherever, uh, climbing the monkey bars or whatever you're doing? Um, we don't want you doing that in the church, okay? If you're, we don't have monkey bars. If you're climbing the walls, that's, that's an issue, okay? And there's probably a property deacon that's going to be looking at you and wanting to say something, except you're the pastor's kid, and now he's embarrassed. All right. But we do speak of fitting and appropriate and proper. And I think that there are concepts there for how we conduct ourselves. We want everything to be done for the glory of Jesus Christ, for his good pleasure. I think we want to have a sense of reverence. We want to have a sense of devotion. I think we want to have a sense that that there is something different about the Lord's day. And there is something different about when the saints have assembled together. Not that we idolize any of that or not that we become legalists about any of that or enforce a dress code or get all weird about, about different things. But with the right motivation, we want every brother and sister that come here this morning to be able to join together in that spirit of reverence and that spirit of worship and that 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 aspect and so i think verse 15 works well with that how you one ought to conduct himself in the household of god all right now all of that being said let's back up now to verses 1 through 3 uh, 13 it is and and uh, yeah 1 through 13 all right it is a trustworthy statement If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work he desires to do. And so here we have spelled out very explicitly, we have spelled out in the language of this verse, the office, not the gift, not the ministry, uh, the office of overseer. What is an office? And why is is there a difference between an office and a gift? Clearly there must be. It's a different concept, different word. And so what is the difference? And we start to see many of them jumping out right here. Aspiring to the office of overseer. 
it is a fine work that he desires. So you have aspires and desires. And how does this come together? <laughs> and how can I wish for something in terms of a spiritual gift? I can't. The gift I have, I received at the moment of my salvation. The gift I have, I had long before I ever knew there was such a thing as a spiritual gift, <laughs> right? Before you ever study the doctrine of spiritual gifts, by the time you can comprehend that doctrine, what's already happened? You've already been given one. You've already been saved for whatever length of time. You already have been growing for whatever length of time. You've already been learning the scriptures for whatever length of time. And then at some point in your Christian walk, you start to learn that, oh, wow, Way back on whatever day that was that I got saved, I was given a spiritual gift, right? And so in particular, it gets very uh, vivid if, in fact, you have a childhood salvation. I was saved at the age of four. That means I was a pastor at the age of four, a pastor teacher by spiritual gift as a four-year-old. How silly is that? Okay. No, it's grace, right? And, and, but I wasn't pastoring a church. I wasn't in the office of overseer yet. That would be ridiculous. Okay, but at what point then, uh, and, and I think it's true for every gift, I think every gift ought to be approached with seriousness, ought to be approached with a desire for training. I don't believe that any gift is, is um, uh, useless or any gift is, requires no training. And, and sadly, I think it gets approached that way, that, well, you have the gift of help, so don't worry about training it, just, just start helping. <laughs> okay, and as if, we, we have a sanction to just wing it in the Christian way of life or just to assume that without any kind of training, I'm going to do everything the, the best possible way. No, Jesus Christ is worthy of, of, of the best possible way that we are diligent in what we do and how we do it. And so I think every gift ought to have training. Every ministry ought to have doctrine associated with it so that we know what we're doing and why we're doing it. It's not just ritual without reality. It's not just mindless service. So, if he aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work he desires to do. An overseer then must be. And what we have here now is the um, delineation of the overseer. I'm going to back up and talk about saints. All right. So then the overseer must be. And we got these verses. 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, and 7. And all of that centers on the overseer. And uh, I'll, I'll give more detail on that when we come back to this concept. Um, but as we talk about the overseer, you may have more than one. Philippi had more than one. It was the overseers and the deacons, plural, that were addressed in Philippians 1.1. 1, 1. But there has to be a minimum of one. There is at least one. That has to be the right-hand messenger. That has to be the pastor of the church, the shepherd of the flock. There has to be one minimum. There may be plural. But it is interesting that everything here is in the singular in verses 1 through 7. An overseer, singular, then must be. And it's all masculine singular. There are no women pastors. There are no women overseers. There are women elders, but not women overseers as far as the office is concerned. Then we get to verse 8 and following. Deacons likewise. And the deacon verses are 8 through 13. That includes the nested uh, verse 11 that encompasses women deacons. But uh, deacons in verse 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13. And so there's a paragraph there that centers on deacons. And it starts with deacons likewise. Deacons likewise. We pay a lot of attention to the likewise because that brings in all of the uh, verbiage from verse 1. Deacons likewise, it is a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of deacon, it is a fine work he desires to do. Likewise. And so when it says an overseer then must be, deacons likewise must be. And so we have the character traits, the, the uh, present tense character traits for their Christian walk. And then deaconesses in verse 11. Women, deacons, likewise. See that likewise? Take all the verbiage from verse 1. We applied it to the male deacons in verse seven or 8. We apply it to the female deacons, the deaconesses in verse 11. Likewise must be. The likewise is, uh, is significant. 
And it goes all the way down to verse 13 for those uh, developments. All right, we're going to be there shortly enough. Before we get to the overseers and deacons, though, we want to start with the um, we want to start with the saints and understand how we are all saints. Here we go. All right. First of all, every believer. Every born-again believer, if you are regenerate, every born-again believer in any dispensation is not unique to the church age. This was true in the age of Israel. This was true in the Gentile dispensation. Uh, I think this is true in the angelic dispensation as well. That's why they're called the holy angels, why they're called the elect angels. Every born-again believer in any dispensation is a saint. Members of the church are saints, sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling. So there are some aspects that are expanded in the church age. But first of all, any believer of any dispensation is a saint. And I think I can prove that. I think in Matthew 27, 52, we can prove that for Old Testament saints. In Revelation 8, verses 3 and 4, we can prove that for tribulational saints, which are also Old Testament saints, just future Okay, um, but any uh, born again believer is a saint because remember the term saint does not mean particularly special or particularly devout or particularly uh, you know we use saint and holy interchangeably but then we have a bad idea for what holy means. Okay, it means sanctified. It means set apart. It means identified for a particular purpose, and that's what. Uh, Hagios speaks to or Hagiazo or the vocabulary here that's uh, related to that. I'll give you the vocabulary here in a moment, but real quick, let's look at Matthew 27. This is a passage that was part of the conference this week in Houston because liberals don't think it belongs in the Bible. Or they say it's okay for it to be in the Bible, but it's not, it didn't really happen. It's fiction. It didn't really happen. It's not historical. And yet, this is what we read. Matthew 27 and uh, verse 52 um, comes in the, in, in the context of the crucifixion and how he is crying out um, on the cross. It says in verse 45, From the sixth hour, darkness fell upon all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried... So. Put that in our terms, it would say high noon to 3 p.m., okay? Total darkness. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. This is from the Hebrew of Psalm 22. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And uh, Matthew gives us the translation there. And some of those who were standing there, when they heard it, began saying, this man is calling for Elijah. The Eli, Eli part of my God, my God sounds similar to the the name of elijah and in particular if these guys are more aramaic speakers and if hebrew is uh, biblical hebrew is not in common usage outside the the priesthood then uh, that's that's understandable this man is calling for elijah and immediately one of them ran and taking a sponge he filled it with sour wine put it on a reed gave him a drink but the rest of them said let us see whether elijah will come and save him and Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Did that really happen? Okay. I believe it really happened because the text here says it happened. But because Josephus doesn't record it or any other secular history doesn't record it, there are skeptics that say, well, it couldn't have happened. Because if it would have happened, then somebody would have written about it. Well, that, that assumes a lot. Okay, because uh, my personal belief, I think that uh, well, they broke the, their own Sabbath on that Saturday. I think the high priest and his sons went in there and they stitched that thing back together again. I think that they repaired the veil the next day, which made them Sabbath breakers in so doing. Um, but to keep the uh, to keep the plausible deniability going, if you minimize the number of witnesses, and we know from the scripture record they were willing to lie and cover their tracks. Right, pay, bribe the the guards. Well, you fell asleep. The disciples stole the body. They were they were very quick to to uh, cover their tracks in this in this event. 
So I believe the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Because uh, it says the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And God cannot lie. All right. And the earth shook and the rocks were split and the tombs were open. And many, doesn't say how many, but it says many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. You know, I think that happened. You know why I think that happened? Because it says it happened. And yet, Dallas Seminary says it didn't happen. True story. Okay? Fuller Seminary says it didn't happen. Talbot says it didn't happen. And these are the ones that used to be the conservative seminaries. Forget the liberals and the, and the denominational seminaries. This is just genre. Okay? This is Greco-Roman biography genre. And it didn't happen, but it was written this way. The methodology for writing a Greco-Roman biography. Okay. Anyway. And uh, not only did they uh, were they raised, but they entered the holy city and they appeared to many. So however many there were and how many there were and how long they'd been dead and which saints were they, there's a lot of details we don't know. But we can speculate and we can estimate because it doesn't say how many. And then we never see them again after this verse. They entered the holy city and they appeared to many. And then what? Where do they go after that? Are they still there today? What happened? You know, um, were they Lazarus type resuscitations? And then did they, were they subsequently, did they die later on again? Uh, or were they Christ-like resurrections? Were they glorified and immortal? Did they rise when he arose? I think that, that they arose when he arose and he took them to heaven. That's my theory. It says, coming out of the tombs after his resurrection. Keep in mind, Jesus is the firstborn from the dead. He has to have first place in everything. And so he came forth from his empty tomb, and then these other saints came forth from their empty tomb. All this happened on that Sunday, April 5th, 33 A.D. And, uh, and then that's it. The centurion and those who were with him, um, they saw the earthquake and the things that were happening became very frightened and said, truly this was the Son of God. There's, never, there's no other mention of what happened to these resurrected saints. Uh, Mark, Luke, and John don't speak of this. It's only in Matthew's record. And uh, so we don't know. My, my thought is that, uh, that it was not a Lazarus resuscitation. It was a, an actual resurrection and that they ascended. Uh, Jesus took them to heaven as he ascended. And they ascended. Jesus ascended three times, I'm convinced, on uh, various occasions, including that first Easter Sunday. All right. So did that happen? Yeah, of course it happened. But anyway, they're called saints right there. That's what the one I'm trying to get at this morning is they're called saints. They're called hagioi. All right, the vocabulary of hagios, singular, hagioi, plural. And uh, the hagioi, they were raised. And those aren't church age believers. It's not simply the body of Christ in the church age that are called saints. We have Old Testament saints. We have New Testament saints. We have tribulational saints. There's going to be millennial saints. There's going to be uh, fullness of time saints in the new heavens and the new earth. And so the term saint simply represents the, the uh, sanctified status of somebody who has been set apart for the glory of God, for his good pleasure, for his purpose. And that's what we speak to, all right? In Revelation chapter 8, again, it's beyond the church age. And so, um, giving you the before and the after with this selection of verses here. Revelation chapter 8. See, in Matthew, I gave you an example of saints before the church age. And now in uh, Revelation, I'm giving you an example of saints after the church age the seventh seal the trumpets when the lamb broke the seventh seal there was silence in heaven for about half an hour explain that one to me i thought heaven was outside of space and time how do you have silence in heaven for half an hour what kind of clocks do they have now i got more questions than answers at this point so maybe when i create my questions in genesis organization i can also create my questions in revelation organization but yeah it wouldn't work nobody has an answers in revelation organization out there but i want to create the corollary to answers in genesis and i want to call it questions in genesis and uh, try to expand upon things that i think are 
areas of weakness there. All right. So silence for about half an hour. And I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. And uh, there's, man, there's doctrine there too. Which angels actually stand in the presence of God, stand before his face? The seven greatest angels that have that immediate face-to-face relationship with God on his throne. Gabriel was one, and uh, the Bible doesn't tell us the others, but... Anyway, seven trumpets were given to them. Another angel came and stood at the altar holding a golden censer and much incense was given to him so that he might add it to the prayers of all the saints. There they are on the golden altar, which is before the throne. Now, sometimes we get discouraged in our prayers because we pray and we think nothing's happening. We pray and we don't see visible things changing immediately on this on this earth. And part of that's just our humanity being impatient made worse by our culture and our generation we are the microwave christian generation now where if i can't why why does it take three minutes to get popcorn that's too long you know i want i want faster than that i want 30 seconds i want 10 seconds see um and i want to pray and then immediately i want to see stuff happening well it doesn't work that way but what does happen though as we pray these censors are being filled with incense and angels are carrying them to the to the Father's throne. That's literally happening. That's what's being described here. And I want to have such a prayer life that angels have to hire extra angels. You know, I don't know how much a, a single angel can carry, but I want multiple angels carrying these things up there. And so uh, much incense was given to him so that he might add it to the prayers of all the saints. And so... However much we are praying, we can take comfort in the fact that God himself adds to that incense, right? If our prayers are deficient, uh, the Holy Spirit intercedes uh, on our behalf with groanings too deep for understanding. And so God himself chips in some extra incense to those to those uh, brazers, which is a good thing. I think sometimes ours are pretty empty, pretty pathetically empty, you know, where a single angel can, you know, walk up there with one hand, you know, holding the thing pretty, pretty loosely. And so the smoke of the incense and the, with the prayers of the saints went up before God out of the angel's hands. Okay, And this is all described as contemporaneous with all the judgments that are happening on the earth. With the seals and the bowls and the trumpets. That while all of this is happening on earth, there's a lot of prayer going on. Right? And in, in, in a lot of respects, I think God uses difficult times as part of his mechanism to ramp up our prayer life. <laughs> and if our prayer life isn't what it sh- is supposed to be, then we get some additional testing circumstances whereby God says, you guys need to be praying more. And uh, so I recommend you develop a, a better prayer life now and, and head that off. Anyway, here's tribulational saints, and they're called saints. All right, so it's not only the church age saints that are saints. Now, when we do zoom in on the church age, when we do talk about the body of Christ, then we have additional details that that do speak of our sanctification in a way that is unique. All right, so there are saints and then there are saints is what we're trying to say. Okay, and as opposed to an Old Testament saint or a tribulational saint. Functionally, they're the same thing. Tribulational saints are Old Testament saints. But um, in the church, though, we have something different because we are sanctified in Christ Jesus and we are saints by calling, individually called as saints. And that is unique to the church age as this New Testament reveals it. There's nothing in the Old Testament parallel. But we find this in Romans 1.7. We find this in 1 Corinthians 1.2. In fact, I remember teaching extensively this aspect uh, in the introduction to the First Corinthians series, and that was that was only 2003. So I'm sure you guys remember that when we taught the the First Corinthians series and highlighting the saints by calling there in in chapter one. Let me grab this here, Romans one seven, and. Uh, <laughs> You think we're taking a long time on our salutation in in Philippians. It's just a two-verse salutation. Romans is the longest of Paul's salutations. It's a seven-verse salutation in the book of Romans from verse 1 down to verse 7. To all who are beloved of God in Rome, 
called saints. Called saints. And this requires a double study. It requires the study on sanctification, which we would do in the aspect of saints, but then the study on election. What does it mean to call? What what is our calling? And and sadly, I think all these arguments and all these fights over election and predestination and calling, all these fights happen because they're not studying it effectively as far as Israel's calling, the church's calling, Christ's calling, our calling in Christ, and how uh, how these things either relate to each other or don't relate to each other. And keeping them separate, I think, is, is uh, critical. Anyway, called saints, saints by calling. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So we are called saints. Uh, we are sanctified in Christ Jesus, 1 Corinthians 1, 2. And this is uh, this doubles up the calling actually because in First Corinthians he is Paul a called apostle. He um, uses the calling terminology and connects it to his office, his gift as an apostle, a called apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God and Sosthenes our brother to the church of God which is at Corinth to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling. It's universal, folks. It's not just certain believers later on that get a second blessing or certain believers later on that really, really love Jesus and talk in tongues and prove their their uh, outpouring of the Holy Spirit or anything. It is universal. Lottie dotty, everybody. My old drill sergeant used to say that. All right. Saints by calling. Those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus with all who in every place Call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. And so it's, uh, it's, this is a fundamental difference between Israel and the church, by the way. Israel was called, but they were corporately called as a nation. And individual Jewish people could be born into that nation, whether they ever accepted Christ or whether they ever got saved. Uh, whether they were ever born again was kind of irrelevant to their calling in, as a part of Israel and their stewardship. And you could grow up and become the high priest, as long as your dad was the high priest before you. And whether you were saved or not was immaterial to your stewardship responsibilities and position. Because it was the requirements were of an earthly birth. The, the uh, stewardship was an earthly stewardship. The expectations were earthly. Our expectations, you can't get into the body of Christ until you are saved. That's what puts you in the body of Christ. That's what sets you apart as a saint by calling. And so we are all saints by calling. And that's, uh, that's a distinction, too, between Israel and the church. I think we would do well to pay attention to that. All right, the vocabulary then, we're not going to do word studies on these, but hagios, H-A-G-I-O-S, hagios. There really is no H in Greek, but there's a rough breather that tells you to, to in front of your A, Hagios uh, is number 39 in the Strong's Concordance. And, and it's an adjective that speaks of something that is sanctified, something that is set apart for a sanctified use, for a, a um, designated purpose. And it doesn't even have to technically be liturgical. It doesn't even have to be religious. It could be just anything that's earmarked, anything that's delegated, right? Something that you put off to the side because you want to make sure that you have it available for some other purpose. Whatever it might be, okay, and uh, and if you're using something that's sanctified for a purpose other than what it was set apart for, then you're defiling it. You are violating the the whole intent of why it was set apart, right? And so your wife has certain things that are set apart: dishes, bowls, serving utensils, things that are set apart because, in fact, they're actually kept in a special. Um, cabinet of some sort a, a china cabinet or a, a thing and and you don't use those ever okay she will tell you when they are to be used that's her sovereignty she set them apart okay and uh and and here's the thing <laughs> you don't want to be i'm telling you man all right There are appropriate things. If, if you are going to make popcorn at some point, 
I just eat it out of the bag anyway. Who wants to pour it in a bowl, you know? But if you use a bowl for your popcorn or for your oil change (laughs) or any other use, it's not intended for those uses, okay? Now, they may functionally work. That's not the point. If they've been set apart for a certain use. Now, in God's case, because God himself is holy, God himself sets himself apart. God as part of his character, part of his essence, part of his glory of being who he is. He cannot be not holy because that's intrinsic to, to being God. And so, but he sets himself apart in how he thinks and how he speaks and what he does, how he relates between himself as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and how he invites others, angels and humans then, to relate to him. It has to be on a holy basis. And that's what holiness speaks to. Now, the verb hagiadzo is the, the cognate verb behind hagias. Hagiadzo, and and this, that, that has 28 uses. The, the the adjective, by the way, has 233 uses. Most of which, I think, probably the bulk of which are applied to the Holy Spirit. He is the pneuma hagion, right? The Holy Spirit, and so it's an adjective that applies to God, the Holy Spirit. But it's an adjective that applies to holy angels. It applies to holy people. And sometimes there's no noun connected with it. It's just the holy. And, and you supply the noun, the holy person, the holy one. And, and then we can simplify it and just call him a saint. A saint is just a holy without a noun, a holy person, a holy man, a holy woman, a holy thing is a saint. So the verb hagiazo, to sanctify, to make holy, this, uh, we think, well, God does this all the time. God's the one who makes us holy. God's the one who sanctifies us. God sets us apart. All those things are things God does, Yes. But we also are commanded to sanctify. We're to sanctify Christ as Lord of our hearts. How do we do that? See? And this is partly where the, the, the Greek word study becomes important and our English betrays us. Our English betrays us because, sadly, um, of the way that it's rendered. And anytime we have a phi verb, anytime we have a phi verb or a Fication noun, right? Glorify, glorification. Sanctify, sanctification. Mystify, mystification. Okay? Any, any five verb or fication noun, any of these, um, expressions, they betray us in the English because we have in, in usage, we have a sense that if I, <clears throat> if I am fying something, <laughs> that I'm changing it. If I glorify something, then I'm giving it a glory it didn't have before. Or I'm increasing its glory. And with God, how do you do that? How do I give Him a glory? He has, He's infinitely holy. So how can I sanctify Him? How can I glorify Him? How can I magnify Him? And Scripture tells me to do all of these. And so um, this is why I think we need to do a better job in, in the Hebrew vocabulary, the Greek vocabulary. We may need to find revised English terms to employ to separate out the idea that I am changing God. Because He's no more glorious if I do glorify Him. He's no less glorious if I fail to glorify Him. If I fail to sanctify Him or if I do sanctify Him, I'm not affecting Him in any way. And maybe we need to just dump the five verbs. Or maybe I need to get over my personal hang-up. Because <laughs> you say, Pastor, I never really had a problem with that at all until today. Thanks a lot. <laughs> Thanks for bringing that to my attention. All right. But if we think about it in the sense of setting apart, earmarking, delegating, setting apart, identifying, wow, And we need to do that. We need to do that on an individual basis. And we may do it in different ways. Romans 14 talks about how one man regards every day alike, another man lifts up one day above another. And I think each man must be convinced in his own mind that we come to personal convictions. All right? To me, Sunday is a very special day. I like Sundays. I enjoy gathering with the saints. I enjoy teaching the Word of God. I enjoy singing the hymns. I enjoy encouraging one another. 
So much so, I even tolerate the suit and tie. All right? Which I don't wear the other six days of the week, trust me. Okay? Unless I have to, funerals or whatever. But um, the point being, though, I do enjoy something sanctified, something different, something set apart, something that reminds me that today is a different day. And so we have the application there. All right, so from saints then to the overseers and the deacons. Now we can return to 1 Timothy 3, and now we can expand upon, I got ahead of myself earlier, we can expand upon these overseers and deacons. The overseer then must be. An overseer then must be. If any man aspires to the office, what's an office? All right, first of all, an, an office is not a spiritual gift. Pastor teacher is a spiritual gift, but the office is overseer. Okay? Now, I get that these are very interconnected. I get that they are used interrelatedly. Sometimes they're used interchangeably. And that's fine in, in, uh, in many respects. It's not necessary to have such precision that you have to be just over pedantic about it. But there are other occasions when, when that specificity is vital and you want to know, know it for what it is. I'm not going to reprint all my business cards from Pastor Bob Bolander to Overseer Bob Bolander. Overseer is the office, strictly speaking. That's the Episcopos office of, of Austin Bible Church. But in common usage, as a matter of our culture, as a matter of our, you know, the public, if I'm handing out a business card, I don't want to stop and explain the doctrine to everybody I'm handing a business card to. It's simply just to say, hi, I'm Pastor Bob. Okay? And they get that. They've got a, they've already got a preconceived idea in their mind of, of, of what a pastor is, and we'll, we'll go with that for now. Okay? But, we're going to talk about what if you're the pastor of your church does not have the pastor-teacher gift? What if he has an evangelism gift? Can he pastor a church? What if he has an exhortation gift? Can he pastor a church? Is every overseer a pastor-teacher by gift? Is every elder a pastor-teacher by gift? All right. So pastor-teacher is a spiritual gift, but the office is overseer. And by the way, an office is not a maturity status. An office is not a maturity status. Elder is a maturity status. But the office is overseer. All right? And again, if you're going to examine the doctrine of, of, of maturity statuses or the, the concept of growing up, okay, we're all commanded to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And the day we're born, what are we? We're babes. Okay? We're newborn babes. And the Bible talks about newborn babes. The Bible talks about babes. The Bible talks about young men. The Bible talks about fathers. And then the Bible talks about old men. And we've got a spectrum there. You ever study 1 John 2? Okay. And you, uh, John says, I've written to you young men. I've written to you children. I've written to you fathers. And there's a spectrum of maturity. And every believer should grow to maturity. Every believer should reach that point, the spiritual maturity status of elder. Elder is a maturity status. And, but does every elder serve in the office of overseer? No, they do not. In fact, none of the elder women do. There are elder women. Okay, I'm not looking at anybody. There are... Let me preach to the projector. I'll just look up in the air. There are older women. And Titus, other books in the New Testament, expect that the older women are going to teach and encourage the younger women. Okay, Because there are also younger women. And, and the pastor is expected to, uh, to minister to the older men, the older women, the old, younger men, the younger women, in all purity. See? As to fathers, as to mothers, as to brothers, as to sisters. And the holiness of that in, in, in the church family. So uh, I, I like to break out a threefold division uh, between gifts, offices, and maturity statuses. Gifts, offices, and maturity statuses. And I think that's a, but that's not a, a, a theological breakdown. That's not a biblical breakdown. I can't take you to a passage like uh, 1 Corinthians 12, verse 4, verse 5, and verse 6 and show you 
uh, gifts, ministries, and effects, which I'll do next. Okay, I think that's coming up. Yes. But there are gifts, there are offices, and there are maturity statuses. And then if we keep those concepts straight, then we can understand elder, overseer, pastor, teacher. Okay? And I did a whole study one time called Elder, Overseer, Pastor, Teacher. In fact, it's got pretty popular. I started using it in other churches and as a guest speaker in different conferences. Um, we even had some deacons that came here from Horseshoe Bay that were thinking about starting their local church. And we taught uh, elder, overseer, pastor, teacher when, when they were here. Part of the church polity is they were getting organized to start their, their local church. So an office is not a maturity status. Elder is a maturity status, but the office is overseer. Now, where they start to overlap and where they start to blend, and the, the intersection of all these is, is important, all right? And so we're going to identify that not every elder serves in the office of overseer, but they still are elders. And we want to understand that for what it is as well. Because an office can be aspired to. You can qualify for it. You can dis- be disqualified from it. And let's say you blow it all, you know, well, let's look at this. An overseer then must be above reproach. A one-woman man, that's translated the husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach. That's a funny one, especially if you assume that it's just a a synonym for pastor-teacher. That's that's a very flawed approach if you think that overseer is a synonym for for pastor-teacher. Because what do you do with this expression here, able to teach? Not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but gentle, peaceable, free from the love of money. Must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. If a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? And not a new convert. Now that doesn't require spiritual maturity, but it definitely rules out the babe. It definitely rules out the new convert, the neophyte. We get the term neophyte right there. Not a new convert so that he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. So he's got to have some kind of growth. He's not going to be a babe. If uh, push comes to shove and uh, due to the fact that we live in the intensified stage of the angelic conflict, what happens if the most mature man in the church is this adolescent who's not really very mature, but compared to the babes around him, <laughs> he's, he's, uh, he's not a neophyte. Can he serve in the office of overseer? Yes. And by God's grace, he's going to thrive. And in that office, he's going to grow. <laughs> okay? In that office, he's going to mature very quickly. The office will mature him. Right? You ever see a president leaving office compared to his portrait taking office? Every single time, they are gray, gray, gray when they leave office compared to what they looked like when they first took office. I think the same thing happens to pastors. All right. Spiritually speaking, it is it is a maturing gift, a maturing office, I should say. All right. And he must have a good reputation with those outside the church so that he will not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. All right. So in all of these, by the way, these are present tense character traits. Is there any verse in there that says what spiritual gift the man's got to have? There is not a single gift mentioned anywhere in any of those verses. Um, and in fact, I think even the, the expression able to teach rules out a required giftedness. You could have the gift of anything, the gift of helps, the gift of leadership, the gift of giving, the gift of, of whatever. All 11 of the permanent church age spiritual gifts. You can grow to maturity. We're all commanded to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. You can reach the maturity status of elder and Jesus Christ may place you in the office of overseer. That's his good pleasure to do. Jesus Christ is the head of the church. He's the one that appoints these things. Now, um, what happens if you um, if you blow it? What happens if you fall into sin? What happens if you get tired of whatever? Okay, and uh, you know it happens pastor uh divorces his wife and runs off with the secretary okay well is he still a pastor not of that church but this here's the key the gift and calling is without repentance 
You can't lose your spiritual gift any more than you can lose your salvation. So he still has the spiritual gift of pastor-teacher. He still has the maturity status of whatever his status was. Okay? And, and believe me, you can be materially, spiritually mature. Mature people still do stupid things. Right? You know, don't think that if I just grow enough, I'll quit doing all that dumb stuff. No, you're still a sinner. And maturity is, is a great provision, but it's, I think you sin more. I think the, the, the hedge is lowered. I think God expects more of you. I think he holds you to a higher account. And when you're younger, he bails you out of some things. You get a higher hedge. Um, I think he overrules some aspects when you're young. But when you're older, he, he expects more from you. So the old man, he's been a pastor for 20 years, and he throws it away, or 30 years, or 50 years, or whatever. And uh, Or he falls into a drug addiction, or alcohol, or whatever. You know, it doesn't say you used to be a drunk. What does it say? Not presently now addicted to wine. It's the present tense all through this. Same thing with the deacons, present tense. It doesn't say, did you have one night you regret way back in college where you were, you know, and, and somebody has pictures, okay? Um <laughs> Hey, what it was is what it was. But what is it now? What is it now? What are the present character traits now? Are you a one-woman man now? Not what you were. What are you now? Okay? We'll have more to say on this on Wednesday. So uh, just be thinking about the office because it's a term. It's the episcopate. It's a feminine noun. Episcopate is the office of the episcopos, masculine noun. And uh, that becomes huge. So chew on it between now and then. Chew on uh, episcopos, episcopae, masculine noun, feminine noun. Chew on uh, some of these aspects, and we'll expand upon it on Wednesday night. Lord willing and rapture pending. Father, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for your grace and the blessing we have to study to show ourselves approved. I pray, Father, that we would have diligence, and as we have diligence, that you would bless our diligence and open the eyes of our understanding. Teach us your truth. I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.